in the church studio, Revelation chapter 19, part 3, and then we're going to enter in to the first part of chapter 20. So much to understand as we get into this chapter that uh, I'm both looking forward to it and dreading it like no other. Just kidding. Not really. Let's pray and uh, we'll move forward into hearing the Word of God set to music. And after we hear a song, uh, we will then uh, sit in silence for a couple minutes and then we'll get to our verse-by-verse discussion of Revelation 19. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us and guide us to the knowledge and the things you want us to know. Uh, we're studying heavily now relative to end times. We're, we're studying uh, from the book of Revelation how to interpret it and need your guidance and spirit to uh, move us into truth. Uh, we've read what many people who study eschatology have agreed has been fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem, Lord. And... Uh, but now we're coming into some chapters that seem to discuss something that's in the future. And so this is a big determining uh, factor on the way we're going to actually see and live our Christian lives. So we just pray that you'll send your spirit to be with uh, all of us as we consider what you have to say and uh, make it understandable, even though some of the concepts are hard. And be with those who wish to be here but can't, and the people who don't want to be here, that you'll help their heart to get to a church, to learn your word, and grow in the spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One, two, three, four. <clears throat> Yeah. 
Let's wrap up chapter 19. We're going to move on to 20. We left off at verse 17. We're going to read through 15 to 18 to get the whole picture as John writes. He says, he, he's, remember he's seen this, and out of his mouth, 
Uh, he's talking about the one who rides, rides on the white horse, goes a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is the coming of judgment upon whomever, the world to come or Israel there or both, whatever it might be. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we know who this is, riding on the white horse. John says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come together yourselves unto the supper of the great God an interesting way to put what the fowls are going to feed on, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them. That's an interesting insight right there that John has seen a revelation where we're going to see kings and captains and mighty men, meaning warriors who are on horseback. Now, we don't have much of that now or in our, in our future. Our wars are fought in a very different way. John has seen uh, the, those who are on horseback, who are soldiers, and the flesh of all men, both bond and free, both small and great, being eaten by the fowls of the air. And I think that helps us place what is happening here in John's vision in a proper context of a different day and age that is not in our future. Again, up to you to decide. So, to me, we're reading the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the very first chapter of Revelation, verse 7, chapter 1, which said, way back, Behold, he comes in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. Caveat, he says those who are looking for him would see him. So when people say, well, did everybody see him? It's those who were looking for him would see him, and that's every eye that was looking for him to take all of Scripture and bring it into what he's saying there. Behold, he comes in the clouds, and every eye shall see him, add in Hebrew, that is looking for him, and they also which pierced him, who may not be looking for him. And all kindreds of the earth, we read kindreds back then, that is talking about all the ethnicities of the earth at that time, all the tribes is another way to put it shall wail because of him even so amen so that's in the first chapter of revelation we're now in the 19th chapter which is bringing us the final picture of the fallout upon the earth when we hit 2020 and 21 that is when we come into the kingdom and we completely change the tone, the tenor, what the events look like, everything else. Up to now, it's all been about this stuff pouring down. Here in verses 11 through 16, we read of Christ, we, we read of Christ coming to strike down the nations, the ethnosa, the ethnos, and of being ready to ready, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So he's on the white horse, he's described in 15 and 16, and he's going to tread out upon them. And part of that treading out upon them, his judgment and his wrath of God Almighty, is to also call the birds of heaven to come and feed upon the horses and the flesh of the captains and the mighty men. 
This to me is a perfect picture of the wrapping up of that age. Of course, this passage is believed by futurists. Dispensationalists are what they're called, and which I used to be one strongly coming from Calvary Chapel. This is believed by them to be describing what's called the Battle of Armageddon. And if, if you're a person who loves rock music, there's a lot of metal bands that speak of Armageddon. And uh, it's a big futuristic battle that many non-believers in the world still believe is something to come in the future. We talked about Armageddon at length in chapter 16. But there's two other places that speak of it. Revelation 14, cha- uh, chapter 14, 17 through 20 says that there the winepress of the wrath of God is going to be enacted. That's Armageddon. So in 19, we're reading about Armageddon. Chapter uh, 14, we read about the wine press. We read about that also here just now. And then in Revelation 16, the name of Armageddon is given. So that is what is being described here in these verses of chapter 19, what is called Armageddon. Now, when we studied chapter 14 and 16 together, we learned that the popularity of dispensationalism or futurism for all these events came about in the 1900s and were really popularized later by a guy named Hal Lindsey who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, popularized by a guy named Tim Tim LaHaye who wrote a thing called Left Behind, I think it was the Left Behind series, I think that was Tim LaHaye, and it's all about get ready, this is coming out into our future. Very popular at the time. They say that Armageddon is going to take place in a place called the Plain of Megiddo, or Megiddo, whichever way you pronounce it. But there are other authors who have different opinions. One is a guy named John No, who says, quote, the Bible's battle of the great day of God Almighty in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 will transpire at that place that in Hebrew is called Har-mageddon. Armageddon is the Greek way to say the Hebrew Harmageddon. Now, why does that matter? We pointed out in Hebrew that Har, H-A-R, uh, means a mountain. So when Tim LaHaye and other futurists have said it's going to take place in the Valley of Megiddo, that is improper because in the Hebrew you can't have a mountain valley. Well, I guess maybe you could, but Harmageddon is talking about a mountain place, not the plain of Megiddo. They found Megiddo on the map, and because of what happened in Megiddo biblically, they say this will be the site of everything that's going to happen with Armageddon. But the Hebrews would call it Harmageddon, and the H is silent with the, the Greek, and that's a mountain. Now, we studied through Scripture at that time, I'm giving you kind of a refresher, that um, this would be Jerusalem. And we gave a number of reasons why it's going to play out in Jerusalem, on Jerusalem, as it did in 70 AD, and not in a valley of Megiddo in our future. And one is, geographically, Jerusalem sits up on the mountains. And we noticed that there's probably 15 references in Scripture where it says, and we are going up to Jerusalem. 
we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything they say when you're in Israel, Jerusalem is always up, up, up. So it's up high in the mountain, thus Har and then Megiddon. Jerusalem is also called in Scripture God's holy mountain. And that's Psalms 43.3. And it is called the chief among mountains. Jerusalem is called in Scripture the chief among mountains. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 14, Exodus 15, Joel 2, Joel 3. Always called the chief of mountains. So if a battle is going to take place in the mountains of Harmageddon, and we're looking at the chief of mountains, it would be Jerusalem. And then we have fulfillment of what happened there in that great battle. Additionally, Megiddon or Megiddo forget the har, just that place, could represent imagery of just battle, bloody battle in general. So uh, how we explain that is Napoleon had his Waterloo. And what that means in history is that Napoleon fought his final battle in Waterloo in Belgium and he lost. And we have a phrase that we'll say today, ah, he had his Waterloo. That doesn't mean that the person had a place in Belgium actually play out in their life. It meant that they got into a final battle and lost. That was our Waterloo. Someone has a a Waterloo with sickness and they pass on. That's That's an image of their Waterloo, right? So Megiddo is a very similar picture in scripture because it was a place of tremendous bloodshed. And so much so that uh, Jezreel, uh, it became synonymous, Megiddo, with slaughter. You could say to a Jew back in the day, Megiddo, and they would say, the place of slaughter. So you take Har Megiddo, and you're talking about the place of slaughter in a mountain. And that's how we get Armageddon coming down upon Israel at that time, and not a futuristic event in the plain of Armageddon. Uh, something that you just might consider as we talk about it. Uh, a quote, history records that a great slaughter took place on the mountain in Palestine within the lifetime of the original recipients of the book of Revelation. That's from a preterist uh, named Sam. And that's true. And so in 70 AD, the Roman armies through Titus totally destroyed where a million one, a million two Jews, and I know we've talked so much about that, were wiped out. That was taking what happened in Megiddo, historically, putting it in the chief mountain height, Har Megiddo, and having it fall down upon Jerusalem. So, of course, Josephus, his secular history supports that when he said, it's a quote you've heard, the Romans ran everyone through with swords whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies, meaning the roads were obstructed with the bodies and made the whole city run with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire, this sounds like hyperbole to me, the fire of many houses was quenched with these men's blood. I'm not so sure I believe the hyperbole of that. I don't know how you could have so much of men's slaughtered blood that it would put out the house fires. Uh, But that is what he says in the War of the Jews 6, 8, and 5. Uh, and then we also, when we studied Armageddon, looked at John Wesley. This is uh, circa 1703 to 1791. And John Wesley said this, The wine press was trodden by the Son of God in Revelation 19.15. Outside the city, Jerusalem, 
They to whom St. John writes, listen to him, when a man said the city immediately understood this, that it was Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress even to the horses' bridles, so deep at its first flowing from the winepress, 1,600 furlongs so far, at least 200 miles through the whole land of Palestine. We've explained that imagery that John uh, uh, Wesley is alluding to. In other words, saying Armageddon, this bloody battle, took place then, there, in that location. Therefore, uh, um, suggesting, at least to me, not a future thing fulfilled. All right. We also see in chapter 19 that there's a phrase, and the nations, in verse 15 of chapter 19. It doesn't, people will read that today and say, the nations, Sean, Russia, uh, U.S., Canada, the nations, and they are all going to be involved in this. But in reality, Palestine was made up of uh, the following nations at the time that this was written. Phoenicia, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Idumea, Philistia, uh, Guelanitis, Decapolis, Perea, and Nabatea. Those were all nations within that area that were affected by this. So we have an answer to nations there. And then Ken Gentry, he adds the following reasons for the destruction of the flesh of all men, as it says in verse 18. The flesh of all men, the warriors, the captains, the horses, the flesh being wiped out. He says this, and this is really important. Apocalyptic imagery often engages in hyperbole by making universalistic statements. And he gives an example, which we've used before. Isaiah speaks of the destruction of Idumea in Isaiah 34. When we, we've read that here several times. When you read in Isaiah 34 about the destruction of Idumea, you could take what Isaiah says you could read it to an audience of Christians today, especially if you go to a Calvary Chapel, futurist, dispensationalist Christians, and say, what is being described here? You read Isaiah's words and they would say, the end of the world, the end of everything. That is talking about the end of this world that's coming in the future. And then you could step back, step back because it says they'd be utterly destroyed and the universe is going to collapse in on itself, etc., etc. All it is is Isaiah describing the end of Idumea. That's all it is from the Old Testament. But if you just take the Hebrew way of discussing it and read it to a group of futurists, they'll say that's describing the end of the world. That's because that's how Jews spoke. They spoke in hyperbole. And we've talked about that. A Jewish mother, her son gets a tattoo. The stars have fallen from the sky and I will never bear children in my life again. I am dead to all my children. It's hyperbole. It's emotional. And that's what we get when we see the, the description of things here in Revelation. Second, and even there's even more, um, there's New Testament scriptures. For instance, talk about hyperbole. Let me give you a few. Paul says that in his day, these are quotes, the gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's a quote. That's Colossians 1.23. Paul says in Colossians 1, 6, in all the world, the gospel was preached. And he says in Romans 1, 8, throughout the whole cosmos, he says, I've checked the cosmos, it's not just the land, it's cosmos, right? We know that the gospel was not preached 
in South America, and it wasn't preached in Cleveland, Ohio. Paul, saying that in his day, as a Jew, was using hyperbole. And, and so, now, we can translate that to say all the world of that age, that period, and we might be right. But if you take it literally like it reads, Paul was not correct. We wouldn't be correct in interpreting it that way. So no record exists that Paul preached in the Hawaiian Islands. The gospel was not preached to the whole cosmos. It's the Hebrew way of speaking. So when we read these things about destruction, and we remember Isaiah and Idumea and its destruction, and we remember the, the Hebrew way of hyperbole in speaking, you can't just take what it says and apply it to this future thing fanatically because that's, that's irresponsible. That's, that's um, intellectually irresponsible to do it. And that is what I maintain. The futurists, the Hal Lindsey's and full Schofield Bible, Darby stance has done. And it's created so much uh, misinformation and misappropriation of time and fears and talents in this world of Christians who some have just, I mean, one time we did a show where we covered like 300 historical instances since Christ of very large groups of Christians giving it all away, going out to the desert because someone prophesied that the time was there to great loss, great waste, great time and energy because no one looked at this with a little bit of reason and said, this is what it contextually means. When it says, on the fleshly feast prepared for all the birds that fly directly overhead, Sam Storm says, quote, here the angel announces the coming destruction of the beast, the false prophet, and their followers through the same imagery that's found in Ezekiel 39, uh, 4, and 17 through 20, where the defeat of Gog and Magog are described. The picture of vultures or other birds of prey feasting on the flesh of unburied corpses killed in battle was a familiar one to readers of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28.26, 1 Samuel 17.44, 1 Kings 14.16.21, 2 Kings 9, uh, Jeremiah 7.33, Jeremiah 15.16.19.34, Ezekiel 29. This is imagery that they would understand that when the birds of prey are preying upon a corpse, it is symbolic of that thing being dead. Jerusalem being the centerpiece for the nation of Israel with its temple and priesthood and genealogy and all that, dead. And the fowls of the air feasting upon the carcass of Israel, forever gone. The interesting thing is that the Romans' insignia on their uniforms were eagles. And so the calling of birds to the supper of the great God, as it says here in verse 17, is intended as a contrast to the supper of the marriage of the bride, which we are now going to enter into in chapter 20. And again, we have a bride and we have the death of, 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 the, of the whore. And one is being fed on by Rome and the birds of the air, their carcasses dead, that religion done, and the bride, virtuous, wholesome, being taken by Christ and as his initial entrance into the kingdom. Adam, uh, J. Adams says, chapter 19 is a story of two suppers. 
they contrast sharply. One is a joyous marriage feast. The other, the carnage of vultures. Chilton, he's a futurist, who sees the loser of this battle, those who became food for the birds, as Israel did in 70 AD, reminds us that a basic curse, listen, of the covenant, the old covenant, a basic curse is that they would be eaten by birds of prey. You can cross-reference that with Deuteronomy 28, 26. So even in the Old Testament, being eaten by birds of prey was indicative of a curse of God upon a nation for failing to follow him. Israel is now a sacrificial corpse. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, 28. And there's no longer any way that can drive away the scavengers. John is seeing the birds coming and feasting upon fallen whore Israel for killing the Messiah, killing Christians, and now that is what this imagery represents. Let me take a, a drink. Um, and John's language is used from Ezekiel, that's Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20, to every bird and feast of the field to devour the corpse of the enemies. All right. That's why when Jesus is approached by Matthew, Mark, uh, not Matthew, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and said, when are these things going to be? What's the sign of your coming? When will be the end of this age? Jesus says in one place, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And without being dogmatic on the phrase, I see those eagles as being the insignia that were on the Roman uniforms at that time. It was what they held as their banner on poles when they marched in and had on their epaulets, you know, the eagle. And it came in. So where the carcass is, Jesus says, dead Israel, dead Jerusalem, there will the eagles be. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip this. Let's go. Let's jump down. The other one, one last thing, one of the greatest uh, disservices to the religious life of a Jew was to not be buried properly. And so uh, they were really strict on that. That's why they would bury really quickly. And that's why in the parable where, uh, not in the parable, the story where Ananias and Sapphira lied, and it says, and they took them and buried them. And you're like, why did they go and bury them so quickly? It's because to a Jew, you've got to be buried quickly. That's a very important thing. Well, when Josephus notes that the bodies of the dead in Jerusalem were cast down from the walls of the city into the valleys, Valley of Hinnom and etc., and those valleys were full of dead bodies that were not in good condition, that this was the most horrific thing to a cultural Jew, that our dead are laying out there, not prepared and not taken care of in their death by a proper burial. So this is another indication that the birds flying overhead had access to the, the, the literal bodies of the uh, Jews that were slaughtered. And that's just another in indication of it being the worst carnage that had ever been to the mind of a Jew. All right, verse 19 through 21, chapter uh, 19. John says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse 
and against his army. That's the army of heavens coming down from the heavens that we have talked about. And we have also talked about how this is the battle of Armageddon that's in Jerusalem. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him which with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast we've talked all about that and them that worship his image we talk about Nero and the command to worship Nero and his image these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone now that we've covered that too but that's an interesting line cast alive into the lake of fire of burning brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh so these passages briefly portray one of the three judgments pronounced against the beast and two other woes that are found in Revelation 13 and 16. In verse 20, we see the beast is captured along with the false prophet and thrown alive into the lake of fire. They are captured because uh, they had gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's verse 19. They weren't going to win this war. This was the triumphal return with his army of heaven, with the power of God Almighty behind him, to bring justice and reward upon that nation. In earlier places, we've noted the phrase, the earth is always translated as the land, when it says earth here in Revelation, and that the land is frequently a, a reference to Israel or Palestine, and the sea or rivers are a reference to Gentile armies, and we've used that model as our way to interpret Revelation. So don't think that scripture indicates a future battle in the plain of Megiddo, the ancient Canaanite stronghold, and that there is no such place as the mountain of Megiddo or Jerusalem. There is, and that's where this stuff is taking place. So that summarizes and wraps up the third part of our study of 19. And now we enter into what am I going to believe in my life about futurism, about futurism and etc. And as I've promised, as I've said, all I've done is read this. I have not studied it yet. We've, we've grown together. We've studied together. We've grown together. And now we come to the chapter that is the deal breaker. This is what makes someone a futurist, someone a partial preterist, someone a full preterist. How do you interpret chapter 20? Uh, we didn't spend that much time on 19 because it is a re recapitulation of things we had studied along the way in other chapters. And 19 is just rehearsing again for us. So we jump right in to this. And let me just first try to explain the way partial preterism and full preterism look at chapter 20. And futurists. The other thing to note is I am going to try to explain to you. In this chapter, we come to the only time in Scripture where millennium, translated from the, uh, the uh, thousand years, is from the Greek word millennia. So now we are going to talk about this thousand-year period. And we have to decide what's our view of the thousand years. Why do we view it this way? And this is going to take up some of our time. So maybe today, I don't know, I'll have to see if we get through it, but we're going to discuss what the different main views are of the millennium. 
And, but let's begin by first talking about full preterism. It's a view that the consummation of everything that we read in the Bible is occurred by 70 AD or around there, I'll say. Full preterists, the last days, when a Christian today says it's the last days, a full preterist, which we can call a number of different names, but I'm just going to stick with that one, believe that this is the last days of the Mosaic Covenant. Understand that, you'll understand full preterism completely. That it's the last days of the Mosaic Covenant. With Genesis through Malachi being the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being Jesus coming in and facing those who were under the Mosaic Covenant, and Acts through Revelation showing how the Mosaic Covenant was being wrapped up by his covenant church, and him coming and taking his limited number bride, who are holy and pure, with him at the end of the full culmination of everything that has to do with the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? That's how a full preterist sees it. And during this time, the whole Jewish and Roman world was evangelized. That's why we have those passages I read to you just a little while ago about Paul saying, and the whole world knows the gospel, and the gospel is preached to the whole world, to a full preterist. What they're saying is anyone who fell under the old covenant of the area of Judea and Rome, out there, that area, had the gospel given to them. And Paul states that as if it's matter of fact. That world is the area of the Old Covenant. It didn't include Hawaii and the Philippines. It included them. So you can, you can sort of say a, a, a fulfillment person, full preterist, believes that everything we read is a history of God dealing with them. Now, why did God deal with them? Because all the way from the beginning, he took Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he established a nation by which he would bring through the oracles, and he would bring through the Messiah, and he would do all of this for what purpose? So they would play their role in putting him to death, so he would come back for his own, so he would get his bride of 144,000, including some Gentiles, and that he would uh, then reign over a spiritual kingdom as a result of what God did through the Mosaic Covenant being fulfilled. That's the way it would be explained traditionally. To a full preterist, the Antichrist was Nero. And we've talked at length about that. The Great Tribulation was Titus' invasion of Jerusalem and parts of Israel surrounding. And the 70 A.D was the return of Christ in the clouds for his bride as promised by him and his apostles. And that the resurrection took place then of those people and it initiated the resurrection on out into the future. Okay, and we'll talk about what a resurrection means to a fulfillment person. The last judgment has taken place in the minds of fulfillment people. It's all done so when we read about last judgment in Revelation 20, 21, 22, that has occurred to a full preterist. Um, now, 
I believe, unlike full, most full preterists, that this all took place actually. Um, where full, most scholarly full preterists, I don't really know all that they believe. I didn't study full preterism. I just read what I and learn. They believe it was all spiritual. So they believe Jesus' uh, parousia, his coming, his return, was spiritually based. I believe it was materially real. And only those who saw him were looking for him, etc., etc., etc. And of course, uh, there's all kinds of questions with that, but I see it as the fulfillment of the old covenant because the old covenant is materially based. He said he's going to come back. The angel said, why do you stand here looking at him going into the clouds? Let me tell you something, he's going to come back the same way. And I believe that's how he came back. I make that clear so that we don't have any wiggle room to suggest that this was a spiritual return in 70 AD and we're waiting for an actual physical return later for a real second coming for us. So uh, I am unlike full preterists. They see it as all spiritual. At the time that this happened spiritually for a full preterist and literally to me, um, the kingdom of God was introduced in full to the world. And the new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a whole new way of living life for God was introduced at that time. And um, the old Jerusalem of brick and dust and mortar and donkeys and all that, done, destroyed. The new is built on spiritual principles, it abides in our heart and mind, it is written on our hearts and minds, and uh, everything that could be shaken was shaken, so that the only thing that can remain is what is unshakable. Since then, according, according to most full preterist believers, at their death, so let's say I die today, um, I am resurrected into that spiritual kingdom finally. I experience a transition from living in this life to living into the fullness of that kingdom that is in place since Jesus came and brought with him uh, judgment and, and judgment upon Jerusalem, his material brothers. And um, we're resurrected into the world to come. Unbelievers, full preterists believe this, are resurrected to the lake of fire where they will burn forever in the presence of God and his, uh, the Lamb and his angels. So that is the way the full preterists, I don't agree with them on that. I am of the belief that um, the lake of fire is purgative, and it's a temporary passing of unbelievers who will experience loss come out reconciled to God, not as sons and daughters. Uh, that's why I believe it's total, we're totally reconciled because the lake of fire was not created for um, man. It was created for Satan and his angels. So it's not a place where man is going to abide. So I don't, I don't see how we can justify. I see that people get thrown in that. We're going to read that later in these three chapters, but it doesn't make sense to me that in this place that was created for Satan and his angels, Everybody who's an unbeliever goes there and burns forever and ever. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why I stand beside that. But I mention this because I'm different than what a full preterist believes. They believe that now, yes, resurrection's immediate. Judgment's immediate. Uh, coming to Jesus is immediate. 
You receive your reward immediate. You enter into a spiritual kingdom immediate. And if you're not a believer, lake of fire forever. So that's the full preterist view. Many people wonder, well, what lies ahead for the physical life of the Christian today, if full preterism is true? This is the main argument. We hear this a lot. And what's the future for the sin-cursed earth? What's going to happen to this world? You see, because futurists believe it is going to be wrapped up like a scroll, the whole universe, and disappear. And so they say, if it's fulfilled back in 70 AD upon the old covenant Jerusalem, and if now everything's spiritual, what is the destination point? You see, because for Christians, this isn't how it is for like Buddhists or or Hindus especially, but for Christians, there is an end to things. Most Christians look for the end of something. And so futurism is really palatable to them because it gives us a finality. It gives us a final judgment. It gives us an end and then no more tears, no more this, no more that. Everything's taken care of. Boom. What we're going to read in Revelation 20, 21, and 22 will be fulfilled. And we can apply it to ourselves in the future. And it gives more comfort, to be honest. It gives more hope for people. Because they're looking forward when they see schools get shot up and they see horrible diseases that are out of control and, and, and infections that can't be treated with antibiotics anymore. We're in the last days. They assign it and they say, I have hope Jesus is going to come and save us. And so it is really hard for people who see end times through futuristic eyes to see what the Bible is saying about uh, fulfillment. It's really, really difficult. And I have a heart for that. Um, And I understand. I really do. Because I fully believed in futurism from my heart until I read that one book that got me going. What lies ahead, and Don Preston, I think he believes this, is there is no end. There are scriptures that talk about the earth never ending. There is not a scripture that talks about the cosmos ending. All the imagery that speaks of heavens being wrapped up like a scroll, we're describing the wrapping up of the former covenant, the old covenant, until the new one is put in place. There are passages that directly contradict the Christian belief that this world is going to end, wiped out by fire, and everyone is gone, and God is going to create another world somewhere else. Absolutely not a passage in Scripture. Find it, talk, call in, or let's bring it up at our Q&A, because they're not there. But we do have passages that say it will never end. And so what is happening, in my estimation, what has happened for the past 2,000 years since 70 AD, or less than that? God is calling to all human beings by his spirit. And he's saying, if you love me, I'm calling to you. Receive me by faith. Walk in faith. Grow in love. Die to flesh. Die and come and join my kingdom, which is eternal and run by my son. My son oversees all human kingdoms. And it is a kingdom that goes forever and ever and ever. And you have your second coming individually when you pass. And you have your rapture when you die. And you have your resurrection at that moment. And you have your reward or judgment at that time too. So the principles all remain. 
The only thing that doesn't remain are these passages that are applicable to Jerusalem and Jesus coming to them. So, there is a group of believers, a lot of them. They're called AA, not AH, Amillennialists. I'm just curious, in this group room right here, does anyone know what an Amillennialist is? I won't pick on you. Okay, an Amillennialist, there are probably, if you're going to put Christians on a scale as a whole, Amillennialists are the foremost belief in how to see the millennium. And do you know what A in front of the word millennia means? There is none. Did you know that? That amillennialists discount the idea of a thousand years. And so amillennialists and full preterists agree to a certain extent of the kingdom that enters into this world. There's disagreement on how it enters into this world, but they agree essentially that there are kingdoms in operation. We're going to talk about amillennialism in a little bit, and, and we'll talk about what it is before we, let, we uh, get out of here. The consummation of the age is another phrase that a futurist believe full preterist steal from the hope of, of the faith. And that is, it, they believe that preterism, full preterism, completely undermines Christ's teachings that is, he's going to come and there's going to be a kingdom here on earth where he reigns personally at his coming and he is over all things. And so futurists say, you are stripping away the hope of the consummation of the age through this eschatology. Um, they say that what we do with scripture, it's called take a pro-Christian, uh, we take a pro-Christian angle of it and we put it in a pro-Christian pro uh, bed. What that means is pro-Christian is we, they say we take the scripture and we make it fit our ideas and give our little nice package uh, so that it gives hope to our uh, view of eschatology and that's called a pro-Christian bed. But um, in a sense, so do all forms of eschatology. Critics of full preterism maintain that the last days are not the last days of the Mosaic Covenant, but rather they are the days in which the new covenant has fully been manifested on this earth. That we are living in a church age and have for the past 2,000 years waiting on this fulfillment of the new covenant to take place. And they suggest that it began with Christ's incarnation and it's going to conclude in the last days with his parousia or his returning to us. Let's wrap up this preface material with a few words about the partial preterist view of Revelation. Chapters 1, essentially there's really is 3, but 1 through 19 to a partial preterist, R.C. Sproul, Hank Hennegraaff, they're partial preterists. They say everything that campus has studied thus far through 19 has happened. It's all happened. It's happened to Jerusalem. Fine. He came with judgment on them. Fine, fine, fine. And they draw a line. They say, however, 21 and 22 not happened. We're going to talk about how they view 20 in a second. But that is the difference between a full preterist 
and a partial preterist. Right now, based on evidence, not my heart, my heart is full, preterist, but based on evidence we've covered so far, I can conclude I'm a partial preterist. I am certainly not a futurist. And I see dispensationalism as the giant work of man, just reinterpreting any way they can to make the picture fit. And they do it using literalisms, which we'll maybe talk about sometime. So with regard to Revelation 21 and 22, partial preterists typically stand with dispensationalists or futurists. And some view this as the historic orthodoxy of eschatology in the faith. That is not true. The Catholic Church are straight up amillennialists. The Lutheran Church, straight up amillennialists. Presbyterian churches, we have a pastor friend who criticizes me all the time, Jason Wallace, complete amillennialists. They don't believe there's a literal millennium. So it is the majority of Christians who are amillennialists, not uh, futurists. But it's just the sway of popular churches got the fervor of futurism to sound like it's the most popular view. But if you were able to do some sort of survey among Christians worldwide, you would discover that the most solid standing scholars in the faith are amillennialists in their approach. So partial preterists and futurists agree on Revelation 20 and 21. Hooray, everyone shouts. We, it hasn't happened. But Revelation 20, there are serious differences of opinion. And since this is where we have landed, we're going to try to understand the different views as we move forward. And so what I want to do is begin like we have done with every chapter. Let's read the text. Now, remember everything we've talked about all this time. Now we're going to read the text of chapter 20. And I challenge you in your mind to seek the Spirit because it says things that when I've read through it, I said, I have no idea how this has been fulfilled. And so I am still firmly in my heart a full preterist, but I haven't proven it. I've only proven partial preterism up to the end of chapter 19. So let's read it. Let me take a drink of water, and we'll hit a few things about it, and then we'll wrap it up. John now says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, Greek millennia. And cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. Don't know how that's happened. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark upon their forehead and in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a millennia, a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. John says, I'm sorry, i got to add this. John says, to the seven believers in the seven churches. Blessed is he that has part in the first resurrection. 
on such the second <coughs> death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a millennia, thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, and the number of whom is as the sands of the sea. That's definitely uh, Hebrew hyperbole. And they went upon the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp with the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now we have real application to the future for most people. Forget it. We're waiting for this great white throne judgment. It makes great sense. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. That certainly hasn't happened. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Fifteen verses. Stuck here at the last three chapters, now seeming to take us from all that was and had been happening to a place of the future. And when we read it, a lot of it seems to be that way. A fulfillment scholar, I want to read this to you. It's a few paragraphs. Revelation 20 is probably the best known and most hotly debated chapter in Revelation. This is the chapter, the only chapter in the Bible, that mentioned Christ ruling and reigning with his saints for a thousand years. It's the only place we see it. An extremely important issue arises as we move from Revelation 19 into Revelation 20. The question arises regarding the relationship between these two passages. Is it one of recapitulation, repetition of the same events, or sequence, two different episodes with one following as a result of another, an episodic explanation? The prevailing scholarly non-premillennial consensus today holds that the relationship between these two chapters is one of recapitulation. So right there, what he is saying is 20 is just a recapitulation of everything that has been promised. We aren't talking about an episodic follow-up that 20 now follows and now we're waiting for that to happen, but that it's a recapitulation of what has happened. Just bringing it up to you. In other words, they argue that the final eschatological battle at the second coming of Christ appears both in 19, 11 through 20, and then 20, 7 through 10. This, of course, destroys the premillennial argument that sees the second coming leading to Christ subsequently establishing the millennium. 
Consequently, premillennialists insist on sequence rather than recapitulation. Again, I'll read that. Premillennialists insist on sequence rather than recapitulation. Oddly enough, my evangelical preterist view agrees with the premillennialists regarding the relationship between these two passages, though with quite different results. I hold that Christ coming from heaven to wage war in Revelation 19.11 represents his judgment coming to Israel in A.D. 70. As such, it reflects the theme of the book found in 1.7, which we read at the beginning of our study today, where he comes against those tribes who pierced him, the Jews. Consequently, 20 verse 1 represents the consequence of Christ's judgment of Israel, Christianity's first major enemy, the binding of Satan, the vindication of martyrs, the spiritual rule of believers with Christ in the present age. Now that is my view as well. That's how I see it. And, you know, we're going to get into why and how. He goes on and later and talks about Gog and Magog and a few other quotes. But I want to wrap up today just by touching on four views, and I'm going to, I'll probably only touch on one of them, and then uh, and we'll wrap it up and touch the other three. All right, big words. Uh, is it predispensational? No. It's dispensational pre-millenniumism. That is one. I'm not going to write these out for time. Historic premillennialism is the next one that we'll cover next week. And then that's one category of eschatology or how we understand end times. And then as we move on to the following weeks, we come to um, postmillennialism. And then we come to amillennialism. By understanding these four views of how Christians see the millennium will help us understand how to interpret Revelation 20, 21, and 22. So dispensational uh, premillennialism. I'm going to go back to camera one, Seth. <clears throat> dispensationalists, and just so that you know, so I know I've repeated it, this was a theory created by in the early 1900s by a man named Darby from a Bible that was translated by Schofield. And it's that we live in dispensations of time through God. Dispensationalists argue for the necessity of the literal interpretation of all prophetic parts of Scripture. So remember that. Literal interpretation of all prophetic parts of Scripture. Charles Ryrie makes this point clearly, quote, When the principles of literal interpretation, both in regard to general and special hermeneutics, are followed, the result is the premillennial system of doctrine. If one interprets literally, he arrives at the premillennial system. So understand that is key to premillennial dispensationalism. If you believe that, then you are taking prophecy and you are literally saying it literally applies. Okay? This means that all the promises made to David and Abraham, this is important, under the Old Covenant are to be literally fulfilled in the future millennial age. 
If you talk to a futurist, they'll say, I just can't believe that God's going to go back on his promises to Israel. I just can't believe God is not going to fulfill what he promised he would do for them. And, and that has to be uh, talked through to help them understand he hasn't gone back on his promise. They went back on their covenant and he gave them a bill of divorcement as proven by what happened to Israel in 70 AD. Dispensationalists insist that God has two redemptive plans. This is important too. One for the nation of Israel and one for the Gentiles during the church age. That's us now. Two redemptive plans. This presupposition, also listen to that word, forms the basis for the dispensational hermeneutic. He goes on and says, as John Walverd states regarding the dispensational hermeneutic, quote, pre-tribulationism distinguishes clearly between Israel and the church and its respective ways that God deals with them. So there's another few key points to understand about them. Um, so there is a rapture of believers in uh, dispensational premillennialism. And that is when Jesus secretly returns to earth before the seven years of tribulation. And he, that period begins... And believers do not experience the persecution as described by coming forth from the Antichrist, which is in our future. And um, he's gonna, the Antichrist is going to rise to prominence during the tribulation period. We won't be here for that. If you go over to Calvary Chapel and my brother uh, Terry Long, you'll hear all about... Uh, God, will someone cut this? He, you'll hear all about... Could this person be the Antichrist? We won't maybe know because we're going to be raptured up away from this. And then he's going to come into power and do all his dastardly deeds, which we have assigned to Nero here in this gathering. So um, believers do not experience the uh, tribulation. The Bible data dealing with the time of tribulation is referring to unbelieving Israel, not the church. Therefore, church age or the age of grace, that's a big key word with rapturous uh, futurists, is seen to be that period of time in which God is dealing with Gentiles prior to the coming of the kingdom of God during the millennium. So hopefully you're following with me, but it's just, you can just call it the futurist view. Anyone who believes there's, Jesus is coming, there's going to be a rapture, we're going to escape it, we're going to escape the tribulation, not the rapture. That they are a premillennial dispensationalist. The visible and physical second coming of Christ occurs after the tribulation. That's why it's pre-trib. You're pre-trib or post-trib. So if you're pre-trib, that means you believe the church will be taken and no one will experience the tribulation. Post-trib means that you believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation with the Antichrist and then Christ will come. Okay, those who are converted to Christ during the tribulation, including Jews, the 144,000 who turn to Christ, go into the millennium to repopulate the earth. Did you understand that? Glorified believers rule with Christ during this future reign. So we are talking about his kingdom actually being here after the seven year tribulation 
being here with the 144,000 and others becoming the priests who rule and reign on earth. A true theonomy. Jesus came to earth bringing with him an offer of the kingdom to the Jews who rejected him. God then turned to dealing with us, the Gentiles. Thus, the church age is a parenthesis of sort. There's a gap in scripture in this age. What it is, is Jesus came and did everything up to a certain point, and boom, parenthetical reference. Boom. Gentile church is being established now. Big parenthetical reference. And then you start right after that with some ellipsis, and then you go on to, now God has restarted everything back up with Israel again. And that is how this is seen by dispensationalists. The rapture is the next event to occur in biblical prophecy. The signs of the end of the age, the birth of the nation of Israel, that happened in 1948. So futurists are huge with that because there's a rebirth of the nation of Israel. The revival of the Roman Empire, uh, predicted by Daniel as seen through the uh, emergence of the EEC and the impending Russian-Arab invasion of Israel. All these signs that happen overseas, futurists say, ah, there's another sign, ah, there's another sign, it's here, it's now. And they appoint to the immediacy of the secret return of Jesus to take his church. The Antichrist is waiting his revelation once the believing church is removed in futurism or dispensationalism. Now understand that one thing, and we're going to end it here, that if you ask, and if you, or if you stand in, because I came from this culture, if you listen to the explanations of what will the people say on earth if the Christians are removed? And this is what they say they will say. One, they won't notice, because there's not many real Christians. Two, they'll say, oh, they went off somewhere. They're kind of radicals. They went off into the desert. Let's just take their property. And they'll just come up with some justification where the world will not be aware of the secret rapture of the church. That is the justification in our day of how the world is going to continue to spin and why people on earth who aren't raptured aren't saying, we've all been left behind. We need to repent. They've all been taken because it's a secret rapture. That is a futurism. Now, this is the same question I get when it comes to people saying, well, if he came back in 70 AD, didn't everybody see him? And, and I just can only give them the same answer that, we, that the futurists give today of what will happen when we get taken. No, only those who were looking for him took him, and he came and took him, and it was a, a lifting up of them once and for all, and, and whatever, you know. So to a futurist, it's reasonable that the world won't miss them at all and will justify their absence here in 2018 or beyond. But it's not reasonable at all to them that Jesus came back in 70 AD and no one really witnessed it or even knowing that the church was really, really small at that time and that most of the people who were Christians were alienated in the first place. So the millennium, here we go, is marked by a return to Old Testament temple worship and sacrifice to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ. At the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment occurs and Satan and all the unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire and there is a creation of a new heaven and new earth at that time. Um, so understand that um, there's a guy named John Hagee. There are other people who are taking collections for the nation of Israel to gather money so they can build this third temple to prepare for this millennium reign that's going to come of Christ. And... Uh, 
it's really funny because it doesn't make much sense to me that he came and did that and they're going to start sacrificing animals again because it's mentioned once in Ezekiel. But that's another story. So we're going to move into the other ways of seeing eschatology next week and then we'll proceed in our verse by verse of chapter 20 and see if it makes sense relative to the uh, full preterist uh, uh, view. Questions, comments, Vanna, you're late. Questions, comments, insights. No way. No way. It's not possible. Is this on? Oh, Oh, that was loud. Um, So I know you understand my views that I believe. I don't understand them, but carry on. Well, we've talked, but uh, I don't believe because I believe Jesus is coming back, but I don't believe that there is rapture in the Bible. I don't see it. For if, I believe, if somebody believes in futurism, I don't think they have to believe in rapture, is what I'm saying. Well, you don't have to believe in anything, really. Because I don't see that in the Bible. They believe that the rapture is, it's key to premillennialism. So what's, it's key to pre-trib, because there has to be a taking up for you to not go through the tribulation. That's why it's called pre-tribulationism. So it is key to the, to the eschatology that Christ comes and takes his church up to save them from the tribulation. That's why they're pre-trib, um, my brother. You don't see that as resurrection and people just mix it up? Uh, no, no, they see that as an actual rapture and the resurrection comes later. Interesting. And then my other question, I guess that was more of a comment question type thing. My other thing is, is um, how do you see in chapter 20, you were just teaching about Satan being bound for a thousand years, and then he's loosed for a season. What does that mean? Well, you are jumping out about eight weeks on me. Remember I just said, I've only read it. I haven't studied it yet. So let me study it, and I I'll see. answer those questions about 20. We're just talking about, and we don't have answers yet for that. Yeah. So let's just stay with that, and at the time we cover those texts, bring that back up, Patrick, yeah. and say, explain this now. And we will cover it. Awesome. All right. Thanks for your teaching, Sean. Good questions. Dos Mas. Hi, I'm Jason. Um, I come from a different perspective now in my current worldview, um, where I'm even questioning the validity of the Bible in general. Okay. As we're reading through Revelation 20, and I'm reading the words, and I'm hearing you read the words, and I'm hearing you say things like, well, that hasn't happened. Um, I just think about the word uh, epistemology, and I think about what we really know about anything that happened. A thousand years from that point would have been, what, 80, 1,000, 80, 1,200? How in the hell do we know what happened and didn't happen? We have to say, oh, well, this didn't happen, and we have to base that on some kind of current state or evidence or what we see to have the gall to presume, oh, that didn't happen. Mm. So I think I would just invite us to open our brains a little bit and maybe as we're reading this, for those who are faithful and believe in the Bible, 
Why say you that these things didn't happen? Hmm. And I will explain why I don't think that happened as we get into the text. This was just a preemptive strike of understanding eschatology before we get, but I will explain why I don't think they've happened and I have the gall to say it. But it doesn't mean you have to believe it or buy it, which is why we like everyone here of differing views. Sure, sure. I just wanted to mention that. I mean, when it says them, they did, was, were, why why do we assume that it's saying anything about us or, you know, when, them, us, now, future, whatever. I mean, how do we really know what it's talking about? It's a good question. I have to admit, how do we know it's talking to us now when it wasn't just talking to them then? And I get it. Yeah, yeah, I just, I think uh, the words, you know, if you just read them at face value, it seems coming from my perspective that we we can't say that they haven't happened. Mm. We we don't uh, we don't have any. You know. Anyway, I'll stop. Keep attending. Back behind you. Hi, my name's Jeff. I've got a uh, passage that I was going to read and have you explain, if you could. I'll try. All right. It's First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven, and it's verses twenty-three to twenty-seven. And it says, For I have received of this Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and, he, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, which he had supped, saying, This, is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Okay, so it goes on from there. Okay. So last week... When you took the bread and the wine yeah. in here, were yeah. you doing that unworthily? I don't see the connection of my worthiness uh, involved in that at all. It says to do it until he comes. Yeah. I don't think that connection of till he comes has anything to do with whether you're worthy or not, if you do it after he comes. It says to do it until he comes. I understand that. And when we hold communion here, Jeff, when we do that, we say... This is a, a memorial for people. We do it w- twice a year. And we do it just as a memorial to remember the shed blood and body of Christ. As a full preterist, I do not think communion is necessary. But I don't think there's anything sinister about it to do it. He told them to do it until he comes. He didn't say, and no one else do it after I come. So I see no sin in holding communion for people who want to remember him through those emblems. That makes sense? Yeah, and last week you also said there is not a Jew on earth who is justified for missing the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. I said what? Read it again. There is not a Jew on earth who is justified for missing the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, there's not. I went back and I listened to last week's episode 
and I wrote down that quote directly. So that's an accurate quote. It is an accurate quote. I agree with that. <clears throat> but didn't Jesus say that a prophet is not received in his own country? Sure. Yeah. So did he not know that he would die? Sure he did. So how are you saying that they're supposed to know that he's going to die before he died? What was the context, since you're quoting me now, I'm writing my quotes down, what was the context of me saying that? You were talking about how if something can be reversed... Well, I was I talking about him being revealed in the Old Covenant. You're saying if it was equal in the spirit of you're talking about the spirit of prophecy, right? And it's from Revelation where it says what? The spirit of prophecy is the testimony, testimony of, of Christ. Jesus, yeah. So the way I explained, I can't tell if you're listening or you're preparing an argument. Well, I am wondering Wait, why. Wait, look at me and let me answer. Well, listen, I'm wondering why that let comment me answer that you made your sounded anti-Semitic. Let me answer your question. The quote from Revelation. Jeff, look at me. I'm listening. You're, you're studying. This the quote from Revelation was that quote, right? The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Christ. And the way I explained that was, I believe the person who said that was an Old Testament prophet. And he made the spirit of prophecy equal to the testimony of Christ that John had, which was a firsthand testimony of him in person. And I said that if they're equal... The spirit of prophecy is equal to the testimony of Christ, and the testimony of Christ is equal to the spirit of prophecy, which is what this passage says. Then no Jew can say, we didn't know he was who he was. They can say we allowed the world to blind us. They can say we were hard-hearted. They can say that we were, uh, we were envious. But they cannot say we have an excuse for killing him. Because there are Jews who did understand the spirit of prophecy equal to the testimony of Christ. Now go ahead and, and talk back. Well, when um, Jesus was, uh, Peter was telling Jesus, I think it's in Luke, um, uh, Jesus actually rebu rebuked Peter because Peter told him, when Jesus was talking about dying, you know, I'm trying to find it here. I know the passage. He said, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Jesus was telling him that he had to die. I agree with that. So what you're saying is these guys who knew him intimately didn't want him to die. No, they did not. Because like you did, but he was saying, I have to die. Yes, he did. So when you read in Isaiah and it talks about his hands being pierced, he's being uh, bruised for our transgressions, and his visions, visions, visage is marred, what... What you're talking about is something that didn't happen yet. It was a prophecy, yes. So these people are supposed to know that he's going to die, but he hasn't died yet. So what's your point? I'm saying you're saying that they should have known that he was who he said he was, but you've got to look at it. I say they don't have an excuse for not knowing. What I mean is you've got to look at it from the perspective of the Jewish people, because the Jewish... Um, structure of society was that they were led by rabbis. Yeah. So it wasn't the people that were at fault. It was the people who were misinterpreting the scripture. Okay. So the people weren't at fault. The people had nothing to do with it. 
The only ones who had something to do with his death, this is what I'm gathering from you, tell me if I'm wrong, were the Sanhedrin and the Romans. And God comes down and wipes out miserably a million two of them. So they, they receive a judgment upon them that is unbelievable with eating each other, suffering badly, but they did that because, God did that to them because, because they were innocent, because there was no compulsion put upon them, because they were not aware of his son and they were blind to that? No. I think the passage where he says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Christ gives us that answer. That's how Jews were able to receive the Messiah, Jeff, is because they knew the scripture and they sought him. The ones who rejected him wanted Caesar as a king, not the Christ. Okay, you're preparing again. Well, it just made me think of something. Maybe you and I should just sit down sometime and talk. It sounds like you have more to say than maybe the audience wants to hear. Or maybe well, you do want to hear it. I don't know. The thing about it is if nobody calls you out on these uh, things that you talk about, then you're just going to keep going through with it as you're, if it's you, tr correct. If you don't think it's correct, I give you that right, Jeff. If you're calling me out, make sense. Because thus far, you haven't made sense. In my estimation, I have that, no problem. That's because you don't. don't Mary. I have no problem. Mary, don't. I have no problem with this. He wants to call me out. It's okay. Yeah, I do. I, I know. But you can do, I don't call you out for your futurist views. I teach what I think is right. You've been coming here, stealthily moving about for a while, doing your pretended thing. You're welcome here. But I don't think calling me out this way is the way to do it because I don't sure everyone wants to hear it. If you think my teachings are wrong, guess what? You don't have to listen to them and you're still welcome. But I'm going to teach the way I, Jeff, I'm still talking. I, can, I want to teach the way I'm led by the Spirit. If you're led differently, you're welcome to that, and I'll call you my brother. But if you think it's your job to come in here and, and correct me, make sure you make sense when you correct me, because you're not making sense now. You're pulling from disparate parts of Scripture to make some case in your mind that I don't see it. And I don't think this is a good thing for one-on-one -on -one when everyone else is waiting for the ending prayer. And that seems to be the way you structure your discourses. You don't allow people time to talk about this. In other words, I'm not trying to okay, contend wait, with you. Go ahead, I'm finish. Just trying to, I'm just trying to reason together. Come reason together with me, Jeff. I know, but why don't you want to let the people who come and sit here do it we do every during week. the time be so they all can hear it? We do it during the week. Mary, I can answer him. We do it during the week, but listen, Jeff. I watch people's faces. This is my job as, a, as someone who's hosting this. And like I said to you last week, when their faces start going like this, watch me, Jeff. I have a duty for everybody. And that's why I don't let protracted arguments go on and on and on, tit for tat for people who want to correct me. If you want to correct me, come and say, I want to correct you. And I'll give you a couple hours of my life to hear you do it. It would be ineffective. So what your purpose is, is to get them to hear you. Exactly. Guess what? If you want them to hear you, there is a building next door you can probably rent. Put out your shingle, 
Say, this is Jeff's view, and let right. them come hear you, Jeff. Well, let me just close with the scripture. Is that okay. okay? Close with the scripture. All righty. This is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8. And it says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of vengeance and supplication. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him. And for one that is bitterness for this firstborn. You should read those with emphasis and conviction if you're going to teach them. Because look, you look, mumbled look. through a and lot of And then you it. go over to 14 and it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, uh, thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Didn't he do that? The city shall be taken and the houses rife. They were his children. He did it. The women ravished. Yeah. So I get it. So this is talking about a future event Okay, in that's Jerusalem. your interpretation, that's from, interpretation. A f from a futurist view, Jeff. Right. And I don't agree with it at all. But let me just ask you No, one Jeff, last we're question. done. We're done. Well, look, no, we're done. What, what Jeff, are the Jews done. guilty of today? Jeff, we're done. You can talk to me personally. Come on, talk to me after. We're done for the audience. Jeff, give up the... Get up. We're done. Jeff, 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 I'm hanging up on you. Jeff. Jeff, calm down. We are done. Be respectful of my wishes. You don't pay a cent for this place. You do nothing to sacrifice for this place. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. Why would you contribute to a false prophet? Why would you? Have you? Have you? Have you, Jeff? You're going to get mad and storm out? You're being confronted back? Je between you and God. Well, this is between me and God, too. Smile, prepare, but Jeff, I'm just saying, you're disrespectful now. I'm just telling you, you don't do anything for this place, but skulk around and wait to uh, lay your trap. You've done it. You've proven what you're out to do. Gather people to hear you speak. I'm just teaching the best I can, Jeff, but your futurism I don't agree with. Sorry. I think you're a brother, but I don't agree with your eschatology. Sorry. Okay? All right. Love you too, Patrick. I love Jeff too. Don't have to leave, Jeff. That's what. Yeah. Okay, final word. Yeah, anti Semitism. You always get that when you teach preterism. Oh, boy. Yes. Oh, wait. John Stephen, go ahead. Yeah. This is what the Lord showed me. Uh, he says he is the lake of fire. Yeah. God is the lake of fire. Yeah. And in Jeremiah, he says, well, and Paul says he's a consuming fire, and he will burn man up like wood. His words are like fire. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? He does, he just does everything with words. He's got the power of words in his, you know, in us. So anyway, that's what I want. And I, I agree with that. I think his fire is purging us of the dross. 
Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Before we do it, uh, you know, I don't know you guys at home who watch, and you, those of you who are here, I'm sorry. Um, th this is, if you get struck in your flesh with something that really gets under your skin, that is something that gets under mine. Verbal confrontation over beliefs rather than just making points. And I fell a little bit to my flesh here, um, and I don't like it. I like to teach what I see and let others say what they want, and you're welcome. But when it is to fight and it's purposeful and it's been strategized for months on end, uh, it, I'm sorry, my apologies, let me die to my flesh, let's pray. Lord, we do seek you, and obviously, uh, we're teaching the word and uh, things got heated here, and I just pray that uh, you will humble me. Uh, before you, realizing the things I teach are not perfect, and there is, there are things in it that are not right, uh, but that when they're not, that we can uh, work together, understand things in love, in peace, according to your spirit. Pray your blessings upon Jeff, and that he will know uh, he is welcome here. I do love him as a brother, and welcome his divergent thoughts, just not the way they were coming out today. We pray for your spirit to be with all of us as we reflect upon our walk, what we believe, why we believe it, who we are in you. And it is all in and through you, and we recognize that. We pray for Myrna and her health. She has been very sick, rounded the corner and in the hospital, and we just pray that she'll have a full recovery and bless Grant, who's watching over her. We pray you'll bless Jen, and who has uh, struggled with her health this past week in the hospital. And you'll heal her kidneys completely and remove the fever. Diana and her, um, her body and help her. We pray for Patrick's brother Paul to come to know you, Lord, and have a relationship with you. And someone says Wendy's cat is sick. And so we pray for everything that we need. So we pray for Wendy's cat. Anybody else who's struggling and having difficulty, Lord, move us forward out of here. Let's put our hand to the plow and not look back. In Jesus' name, amen. I am so